From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In the fight against COVID-19, scientists in Colorado and around the world are researching vaccines, treatments, and cures. People with severe and critical COVID-19 infection tend to have a lot of inflammation. The idea is if you can reduce that inflammation, people will get better quicker. What else is in the pipeline? Then Gunnison County has been hit hard by the novel coronavirus. Hundreds of volunteers have banded together to help. And we'll get the latest on the models that predict how well Colorado's doing flattening the curve. Have we reached the peak? Plus, how to throw a party over the internet. Hell yeah. Buenas. Bingo. I win. Cool. Hey, good game. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Researchers are battling COVID-19 on every front. They're looking for treatments, for vaccines, and for cures. Colorado labs and hospitals are in the fray. CPR's Claire Cleveland has been reporting on their efforts. Claire, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Avery. The World Health Organization estimates a vaccine for COVID-19 could be ready next spring at the earliest. Colorado is in on the action. We heard about Grefx Incorporated's vaccine candidate on the show a few weeks ago. That's a company with labs in Aurora. Are there other vaccine efforts in Colorado? There are. So researchers from Colorado State University are working on a probiotic vaccine using the bacterium Lactobacillus acidophilus which is commonly found in yogurt and other foods you eat for gut health. The genetically modified engineered or the genetically engineered version of the bacterium, however, can modify the human immune system to block the virus from binding to our cells. Greg Dean, he's the researcher leading this project, described it as attacking the Achilles heel of the coronavirus. And are there other treatments that could come sooner than a vaccine? Possibly. It's hard to say when exactly we'll have treatments. CU Anschutz Medical Campus is working on developing and testing several antiviral inhibitors. Those stop the virus from reproducing inside a sick person, which then slows or stops the infection altogether. And aside from those, Dr. Thomas Campbell is enrolling patients in a clinical trial of Cirilamab. It's an anti-inflammatory drug approved by the FDA to treat rheumatoid arthritis. It targets a protein that mediates inflammation in the body. Um, According to data from patients in China, targeting that protein can help patients recover from COVID-19. Here's Dr. Campbell. People uh, with severe and critical COVID-19 infection tend to have a lot of inflammation. Specifically, they appear to have a lot of inflammation in their lungs, and that is what leads to uh, respiratory distress, need for supplemental oxygen, and oftentimes need for uh, mechanical ventilation on a uh, respirator machine. The idea is, is that if you can reduce that inflammation, people will get uh, better quicker. If they're not on a ventilator, they might not need to go on the ventilator. Or if they are already on mechanical ventilation, they might come off of mechanical ventilation sooner uh, than later. And as we know, there's a shortage of ventilators across the country, and those who do end up on a ventilator have worse outcomes than those who do not. So preventing patients from ever needing a ventilator has huge implications for our ability to manage this disease. How many patients has Dr. Campbell enrolled in the trial for this drug? When I spoke to him earlier this week, he had 15 people enrolled. 
But it's important to note that the trial was developed jointly by the pharmaceutical companies Regeneron and Sanofi. So hospitals all over the country will be enrolling patients in this trial. By the end, we'll have a good idea of Cerilumab's efficacy based on hundreds of patients. President Donald Trump has pushed two antimalarial drugs, despite hesitancy from the head of the Food and Drug Administration and some other scientists. What do we know about those? We know that the, the drugs, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, have shown some promise in treating COVID-19, but have not been vetted thoroughly enough for scientists to be sure that they're safe and effective. The doctors and researchers I've spoken with have all been careful to note that currently there is no proven effective treatment for COVID-19. In order to get results, carefully designed and well-controlled clinical trials are necessary. Rushing the science could result in drugs that don't work or have side effects that we're not aware of. Dr. Campbell said that as we're learning about how to use these drugs for COVID-19, it's equally as important that we learn about their safety. So researchers are working on a vaccine and they're working on drugs that can limit the spread or lessen the impact of COVID-19. We've also heard that it may be possible to treat sick people with the plasma of people who have already recovered from COVID-19. What's that about? Yeah, so plasma from people who have recovered from COVID-19 contains antibodies. And those antibodies may prove effective in helping extremely ill patients to fight off the virus. Dr. Kyle Annan at Children's Hospital of Colorado is helping to lead this effort. She and her team got plasma from a recovered COVID-19 donor, which was then used in a sick patient, who's now one of the first in the country to receive plasma to treat COVID-19. Here's Dr. Annan. Convalescent plasma is just normal plasma that we would get from a blood donor any other day of the week. It just happens to be plasma collected from someone who has just recovered from COVID. So every time a blood donor gives blood and that plasma is used on a patient, there are some antibodies in there. Whatever that person has gone through in their lives, every cold, every flu, every bacterial exposure, every allergen, there are a mix of antibodies in that plasma, and that's going to get transfused to that patient. So those antibodies will hopefully help the person who's sick to fight off the virus. We don't yet know if the treatment was successful. It happened just a week ago, but doctors are hopeful. During the H1N1 flu in 2009 and 10, convalescent plasma worked well, and it was even used to treat patients during the 1918 Spanish flu, believe it or not. Um, And recently, the FDA has asked researchers to start clinical trials. Claire, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Avery. Claire Cleland is a Max Wysick News Fellow at CPR News. She's reporting on the development of vaccines and treatments for COVID-19. Gunnison County was hit early and hard by the novel coronavirus. It now has one of the highest rates of infection in the country. When residents began falling ill, more than 500 locals volunteered to help. The community has also raised $130,000 to help with everything from purchasing masks for healthcare workers to buying groceries for those out of work. Here's Lauren Kugler with the Community Foundation of the Gunnison Valley. Gunnison County, I think, is a very giving place because of our small community tucked away high in the mountains. We help each other out. Folks really want to give back to their friends and neighbors, to their community, and its people. I'm joined now by Arden Anderson, who's heading up the volunteer effort. He joins us from the Gunnison Pandemic Command Center. Hi, Arden. 
Good morning, Avery. How are you? Doing well, thanks. 500 people in just a few weeks. Give me some example of who is volunteering and the work that they're doing. Uh, We've got an amazing array of volunteers here. Uh, Some are city and county workers whose regular jobs are not uh, uh, being conducted at the time and uh, are redirecting their efforts to uh, help out in any way they can in the volunteer effort. Others are folks that are out of work when the ski area closed down in Crested Butte um, and a variety of other businesses around the valley closed down. Uh, Those people didn't have a lot to do uh, and uh, felt uh, a need or a responsibility to reach out and and help the rest of the community get through this crisis. And as you talk with these people, what are they telling you about what's motivating them and why they've stepped up? I think the Gunnison Valley has an amazing tradition of volunteering, not just during this instance, but for a lot of things we do, whether it's uh, trail maintenance days or public land cleanups or uh, city cleanups or a variety of other things around town. Um, We're a small valley with a small population, and we don't have all the resources that a lot of larger places do, and people are accustomed to giving their time and effort to make things work well for everybody in the valley. And are all 500 of those volunteers now working? Uh, We use them as needed. Uh, Just to give you an idea, last week we used 249 volunteers to cover 255 different shifts, and together they put in about uh, 1,275 hours. Wow. In support of the volunteer, or in support of the incident response here. And we should note that everybody is banding together as the county's latest public health order says visitors are no longer allowed in Gunnison County. So Right. We have limited resources here and we're struggling with the high patient load that we've got to uh, get through this on our own. And so we'll, the Gunnison Valley is a wonderful place to, to visit, but uh, we're asking folks to hold off on that until we get through this and uh, we're in a better position to welcome them. Right. And so not stressing the healthcare resources that exist makes a lot of sense. Um, do you know of anyone personally who has had the virus? Yes, I've got uh, my neighbors and a variety of friends and acquaintances throughout the valley. And I imagine part of this is that the population in Gunnison is not high. And so there is a sense that everybody knows a lot of people in the area. Yeah, we've got about 15,000 people in the valley and it's a pretty tight knit place. You know, I've volunteered on the ambulance here for quite a while, and one of the challenges is uh, most every call that you go on, you're dealing with someone that you know or someone's family or friends or things like that. So that uh, is hard sometimes, but it also adds a little extra motivation to do a good job and make sure we have good outcomes. And how did this army of volunteers come together so quickly, and how did you land at the home? (laughs) I don't know whether it was bad luck or good luck. Um, You know, in a typical disaster, if we had a wildfire or something and we exceeded our capabilities to deal with it here, we could call in resources from other places. We have a lot of mutual aid agreements uh, that could reach out uh, to other parts of the region or the state or even the country to send resources our way. But when everybody is in the same boat of having to deal with the pandemic, nobody has extra resources they can send in. So we realized early on that it was going to be necessary to make do with the resources that we had. Um, I'm uh, well plugged into the emergency management system here in the county as a Red Cross volunteer and and other roles that I've played uh, helping out in the 
emergency operations center and with pandemic planning and a variety of other things. So they thought I might be uh, a good person to try and head up the volunteer effort. And this is something we stood up on the very first day that we uh, established an incident command team. And other grassroots volunteer efforts have sprung up, too. There is a group working on a plan for economic recovery after this is over. And there's a virtual tipping effort to help restaurants and bars in Crested Butte. Here again is Lauren Kugler of the Gunnison Foundation. The Crested Butte tip jar was set up by a local part-time resident who took it on as a labor of love. And they set up a website that allowed folks to give tips to their favorite bars and restaurants, or people could just choose to give a tip generally to the restaurants and bars throughout Crested Butte. And I believe they raised almost $50,000 in just about two weeks. So that's just one way the volunteers are giving of time or resources without being there in person. But given how contagious the coronavirus is and the stay-at-home orders in place, are there some jobs that volunteers just can't do? We have volunteers working in a variety of jobs. Fortunately, our healthcare professionals at the hospital and with the practitioner's offices and public health are able to do most of the direct patient contact. But we've got volunteers helping in the uh, alternate screening clinic that we have, checking uh, uh, patients for symptoms. We've got uh, delivery drivers that are delivering groceries and prescriptions to houses that are affected by coronavirus. And we've just had to develop uh, proper training uh, procedures and protocols for them to follow so that they can do their job with the minimum amount of exposure to themselves or to the people that they're serving. And I understand that you spend 60 to 70 hours a week at the command center. How are you personally holding up? Well, this is day 31, so uh, we're into it a bit. But um, I'm kind of accustomed to this kind of work schedule, so I'm doing okay. And uh, I've got some amazing help. Uh, It didn't take me long to recognize that I couldn't do this by myself. So I got other volunteers to help me manage volunteers, and I'm able to delegate and share the workload uh, quite a bit. Arden, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for your interest in what's going on in the wilds of Colorado here. You know, in this uh, orchestra that we're playing, uh, me and my volunteer coordinators are just the conductors. It's the volunteers that are playing the music out there, and I applaud every one of them. We appreciate what all of you are doing. Arden Anderson is the volunteer coordinator for the Gunnison County Pandemic Response. He's a retired public lands manager. Governor Jared Polis celebrated early signs that social distancing is slowing the spread of the new coronavirus this week. So did some emergency responders like this Colorado ER doctor. This is the curve. It says that we are past the peak. All of those efforts at isolation... I can't tell you how happy I am. (laughs) I hope this holds. But state health officials say we're quick to say, and both Polis and that frontline physician agree, that those estimates should be taken with a grain of salt. Here to help make sense of the numbers are CPR's health reporter John Daly and climate reporter Sam Brash. They dung into the state's numbers, its projections, and what's happening in hospitals. Welcome. Hey, Avery. John, you communicated with Dr. Jason Persoff of the University of Colorado Hospital, who we heard from just a moment ago. What made him so hopeful? 
Well, he was specifically looking at a model put together by scientists at the University of Washington. They looked at every state. Basically, these charts predict how many people will die of COVID-19, how many people will be hospitalized in each state, and how that matches up with each state's hospital capacity. And if you watch that model over the last few weeks, it was predicting a big wave of cases. Then when it was updated over the weekend, that tsunami wave had flattened down to something not nearly as devastating. Note that Persoff said that his excitement here reflected his personal views, not necessarily those of his employer. And later in the day, he got back to me and tempered his optimism. He said that the state's data suggests that the curve might, might be flattening, but it's just too early to know for sure. This University of Washington model is one a lot of folks have been using in the state and across the country to figure out what's coming with COVID-19. Yeah, that's right. The New York Times, NPR, many news outlets are following it, and so are many people in the healthcare world and ordinary folks. And when I first saw that updated curve, it definitely caught my attention, too. And it seemed like a sign of some real improvement in the outlook compared to what it had looked like earlier and a, a cause to celebrate. And when he looked at it, Colorado's numbers were really optimistic. Yeah, the numbers had dropped big time. On Saturday, the model predicted Colorado would exceed its intensive care capacity, which would be really bad, and that more than 2,000 people would die in the state by August. But by Sunday, that same model suggested, in fact, Colorado was already past its peak. It was predicting something more like in the hundreds, not thousands, would die. Wow, that would be huge. But Sam, your reporting found that not all modelers agree, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And importantly, the modelers who are informing state policymakers like Governor Polis don't agree. Uh, he's been relying on a separate team of modelers, mostly at the uh, CU Anschutz Middle Medical Campus. And they said that the numbers in Washington probably um, aren't correct, or at least like John was saying, it's too soon to tell where we're at. Why is that? So, so they've built a separate model that uh, is informing policymakers. I spoke to Catherine Colburn at CU Anschutz, and she sees like a couple of problems with this University of Washington model. The first, uh, Avery requires like a quick trip back to uh, statistics class if you're up for it. Um, <laughs> Go for it. But the, <laughs> okay. So the model we were talking about earlier is statistical. That means it looks at the trajectory of past outbreaks, especially ones in China, and then like fits what's happening in Colorado to that curve. She thinks it's better to take a mathematical approach, and that means actually building a simulation of how the disease itself would spread in Colorado, actually representing what's happening through math. Okay, so I think I get it. It's like with weather yeah. forecasts, you could either predict rain based on when it's rained in the past, or you could look to see what the clouds are up to, and you could forecast that way. Exactly. That's a great way to think about it. But why is a mathematical approach better than a statistical approach? We're talking about the same disease in Colorado and in China. Yeah. Um, Colburn seems to think that you can't assume the disease would behave in the same way in these two very different populations. So she thinks as a result, the state's model is more accurate and it can adjust based on what's happening on the ground in Colorado. What about the state model? Where does it say we are in the course of the outbreak? So it doesn't think uh, we're at the peak yet. Uh, these models um, really pay a lot of attention to how well Coloradans are adhering to these social distancing measures, everything from closing bars and restaurants and schools to telling people to stay home. Um, they measure that in terms of efficacy. So like 
I guess a rough way to think about it is like, think about how many people you saw before all these measures went into place and think about how many people you see now. If you're seeing, you know, like 20% of the total number of people, that's, that's uh, 80% efficacy, right? Um, so if we stick to 60% efficacy, Colorado thinks, uh, these models think that Colorado would overwhelm its ICU bed capacity by about mid-May. But if we're better at it, then you flatten the curve enough that we might never hit that capacity threshold. So the modelers are really stressing that like people and their behavior are the key variable here. Um, but they also think that these intense social distancing measures can't stay in place forever. And that once you loosen them, the state should expect a second peak once people are interacting again. So we've thrown around a lot of percentages and numbers. Bottom line, <laughs> what should listeners make of these projections? I, I think when it comes to these projections, you should be really careful. These were not designed for the general public. They're designed for policymakers and healthcare providers. So they know uh, what they need and when they need it as far as supplies and ventilators and stuff like that. I don't think that's why most people are reading them. I think they're looking very understandably for a sense of like when we can get out of this nightmare. But the thing is, there's just a ton of uncertainty built into these models themselves. And that those questions are actually pretty like political in nature. They depend on how people behave and when policymakers feel like, you know, the costs of reopening society outweigh, um, you know, or the benefits of reopening society outweigh the costs. And John, you looked at these more abstract numbers of possible deaths, hospitalizations, et cetera. How does what they're seeing line up? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of things to be watching. Uh, hospitalization numbers is a key figure. And and I've also been talking to a number of frontline hospital providers and administrators, and there's some really interesting anecdotal information I'm hearing. Yes, there is a steady increase in COVID patients in emergency departments, and often these patients are very sick and need ventilation, perhaps for weeks. And roughly half of those who get put on ventilators won't survive. So it's easy to see how challenging it is for ERs and hospitals if they get a huge number of cases all at once. But some of the other things we're hearing is about fewer ER visits for other things that they usually see, like car accidents and shootings and stabbings and EMS transports for those things are down. So I've heard of descriptions of sort of surreal emergency rooms where the makeup of the patients that they see has just kind of, you know, transformed overnight. And so a lot of this rides on how well we stay apart from each other in the coming weeks. Thanks, you two. You bet. Thank you. CPR reporters John Daly and Sam Brash. You can find all of their coverage of COVID-19 as well as the rest of the newsrooms and more of John's reporting on how hospitals are caring for patients at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Can you stay up to date on what's important to know while maintaining some sanity? Hey, I'm Alex Govill, a digital producer at CPR, and the answer is emphatically yes. At CPR.org, we're live blogging the news of the day, every day. Whether that's the latest from Colorado Governor Jared Polis, event cancellations, the newest number of coronavirus cases in Colorado, or a moment of joy. Get what you need as we all live through these uncertain times. Check it out at CPR.org.
A young girl whose life helped shape the debate around CBD has died. Charlotte Figgy was 13 years old. She lived in Colorado Springs. She had a rare form of epilepsy. Her family's search for a treatment inspired other families to seek out marijuana as a possible medicine for their children. I'm joined by CPR's Anne-Marie Awad, host of the podcast On Something, about life after legalization. Anne-Marie, for those who are unfamiliar with Charlotte's story, can you remind us how she came to be in the public eye? Sure. In 2013, CNN came to Colorado to do a documentary about legal weed. And this was just a year after the state had legalized recreational marijuana. The hour-long special introduced the whole country to Charlotte and her family and their dilemma. So at the time, um, Charlotte was five years old, and she was born with Dravet's syndrome, which is a very rare, severe form of epilepsy. So Charlotte was having hundreds of seizures every week, and the traditional treatments for epilepsy weren't working. So at the time, Paige Figgy, her mother, had heard about trying CBD, and she managed to get some. So Paige Figgy actually described the difference CBD made in Charlotte's life in a video posted by the nonprofit Realm of Caring. It took a while to get her to where she is now. She's about 99.9% seizure control. It took about six to eight months to get to that, um, gradually just trending upward, just, just constantly improving. But she, from that first dose, she hasn't been to the hospital. She hasn't been on another drug she hasn't had those 50 seizures a day, so, so she had 1,200 a month. 1,200 grandma seizures a month, not counting all the thousands of small ones every day. And she has like two, about two a month now. Yeah, so it's, it's very obvious to our family. So Charlotte was in, you know, wheelchair bound. She couldn't swallow, she couldn't eat, she couldn't talk, she couldn't do anything. She was, had no quality of life whatsoever, just suffering. And so right now, today, she can ride a bike. She's running around. She's, friend, you know, her twin sister's like the joy of her life, her older brother. It's, um, we have a family again. How did Charlotte's legacy grow from there? Well, it inspired this huge movement of people who call themselves medical refugees. And so these are folks who picked up their lives, moved to Colorado, all for the sake of getting access to CBD or just legal marijuana um, as sort of a last resort for really difficult to treat illnesses, especially illnesses among kids. Um, the family later founded an organization called Realm of Caring that we've mentioned a couple times already. Um, it's a nonprofit that's devoted to cannabis research and literacy. And uh, throughout all of this, the Figgies were helped out by a cannabis company called the Stanley Brothers, um, who named this CBD extract after her. It's called Charlotte's Web. And in the years since that special, CBD has been taken a lot more seriously as a potential treatment for epilepsy. Um, in 2018, the FDA approved Epidiolex, which is a CBD-based treatment for Dravet's syndrome, which is what Charlotte had, and another type of rare epilepsy. Charlotte and her family were part of a large community. So what sort of response have you seen to the news of her passing? Just an outpouring of support on the Realm of Caring Facebook page and from the Figgies' personal Facebook page. Um, and, I mean, these are people who really look to the Figgies as an inspiration. So one comment says, you and your family changed my family's life forever. We will always be grateful. Another one says, Charlotte is the reason my daughter has an extended lease on life. Um, and another says, my son had several seizure-free months before he passed due to this family's dedication. Lots of comments uh, 
really expressing gratitude when it comes to the fight against intractable epilepsy. Well, our thoughts are certainly with the Figgies as well. Thanks for joining us, Anne-Marie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Charlotte Figgy had been sick since early March. In a statement, her mother, Paige, told the Denver Post that Charlotte's illness was treated as a likely COVID-19 case. She was tested, but the results came back negative for the virus. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Finding ways to avoid letting life in isolation get to you can feel overwhelming, especially if someone tends to be outwardly social in the first place. That's what CPR's new podcast, At a Distance, is all about. In the latest episode, hosts Sam Brash and May Ortega try out a virtual game night. Here's May. I am very extroverted, and I need to be around people to feel happy and to feel okay like if I don't if I'm not around people all the time like every day I start to get real sad like depressed type of sad I think of myself like a battery where I need to be with people to literally recharge and feel like myself again really So I've been reading a lot, seeing a lot of articles. A lot of people have been doing video chats or like happy hours via Skype or like Google Hangouts and stuff like that. And I never really done anything like that. I figured webcam parties seem to be the maybe best and only option right now for getting that kind of social recharge that I need. I decided to try it out myself, hang out with my friends and get away from pandemic talk for a night. So, on this episode, I want to bring you along for this little experiment. From Colorado Public Radio, this is At a Distance. Your guide to life during a pandemic. I'm May Ortega. And I'm Sam Brash. Uh, May, are you there? Yeah. Hello, Sam. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you good. Well, I, I was giving you a call for this show because I heard you were planning on hosting one of these, like, virtual internet parties. Is that right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's going to be... I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to it. Right. And I, I figure a lot of people who are listening have, have tried or are going to try something similar. Um, since coronavirus has taken hold, we've heard about virtual happy hours, virtual raves, virtual AA mm-hmm. meetings. Um, and I'm wondering, like, what, what, what's your version of this? What are you going to do? We are doing a virtual Loteria night, Um, so I'm extremely excited to play Loteria. It's been a minute, and I'm looking forward to playing tonight, actually. We're going to get started in a couple of hours. Whoa. Okay, um, I feel like this is one of the things I know... I should know, and I don't know. So I'm just going to ask the question, like, what, what is Loteria? Loteria, I would say, is like Mexican bingo, but instead of... 31B, it's the mermaid or the devil. And that's the simplest way that I can put it. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. So instead of letters and numbers, you have pictures on each square. That's right. And your the board you're playing on is far smaller. There are 16 squares to fill and that's it. I can tell you that this this game sounds charming, but it is not played among uh, Jews in South Denver. I'll, I'll tell you right now. That is shocking. No, it is not shocking. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, May, here, here's the biggest thing I'm curious about as you embark on this, like, virtual challenge of yours. is like, what do you want to get out of it? Like, what to you is success? 
you know, success to me will be knowing that everybody had a good time and shared some laughs and feels less alone. Because I know that doing this via Google Hangouts, doing it online, is not the same, but we're still real people who are doing this together. So I'm really hoping that it can help with that loneliness and that blues that we're experiencing while we're locked in and maybe make us feel maybe like we're not even at home anymore. Right. I guess that's interesting because, you know, you're a person who I think pays a lot of attention to where other people are at. And that's what you talked about there is like, I hope we feel a certain way. I guess I want to know, like, what do you want to get out of it? When we end that Google hang out when we hang up the laptop closes I hope I can take a second breathe and say hey that was super fun and I definitely feel better now than I did before less alone more like I was with people because the loneliness is something that obviously is a big part of this and I just need to feel like I got a good laugh like things are okay okay well, I'll let you uh, keep getting ready, and, and let's check back in um, sometime after, you, after you've had your virtual Loteria game and see if we can, like, yeah, for sure. here it goes and, and give people some advice on how they can do something like it, too. Yeah, I'm very excited. I, um, I, I need this. <laughs> I need this so badly. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get my wine going. Once I had my glass of wine, it was time to start drawing the cards that I'd be using for the game. My printer's broken, so I have to do them by hand. So I pulled out some blank paper and my colored pencils, and I sat down at my living room coffee table and got to work. All right, so I'm gonna be doing a four by four grid. That's a rectangle, okay. (laughs) And once I finished that, I put on a cute outfit and a little bit of makeup. I really wanted to make myself feel like I was going out to see people and the ritual of getting ready in this way is part of going out for me. So I did all that and then I was ready to go. Very good, cool, I'm excited. It's gonna be good. And then I'm just gonna get set up because I wanna be ready. And so the party began. Um, okay, Susan's here. So let me go around and introduce people. So I know everybody here. Susan. Once we got everyone acquainted, we got to playing. Uh, next, La Estrella, the star. I have that one. There were some weird moments. Um, At one point, there was some confusion on what, like, the rules were. I mean, not number one. We're already in it. You know what? Disregard the number one. (laughs) But we got the hang of it. And in our last round, my friend Caitlin only needed one more card to win. La mano or the hand. Oh, my God, Caitlin! La mano! (laughs) Hell Yeah. Buenas, bingo, I win. <laughs> cool. Have a good game. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. Uh, 
Uh, all right, May Ortega, we talked before your party. Now that party has happened. So I want the full report. Mm-hmm. How'd it go? I had a good time. It was fun. I got to hang out with my friends. I mean, virtually hang out, but it was a hangout, you know, mm-hmm. got to hang out with my friends and we had a lot of laughs and I got to share this game. That means a lot to me personally. Right. You know, I've been playing it since I was a child. So I think it was a good time, um, but I will admit that I think I could have prepared better. <laughs> it was a little bumpy in the beginning, but we made it through just fine and we played several rounds and it was it was it was pretty fun. Yeah. All right. That, that sounds like a that sounds like a solid B plus. I would say so. That sounds about right. <laughs> Tip number 1 that I would give people is make sure that everybody is on the same page, okay? Like before you get started. Like be it everyone has the same maybe version of whatever game you're playing or the same edition. Sounds like send out a compendium of rules, give people all the materials they might need maybe too. Yes, don't assume. Do not assume. Even if they're virtual, (laughs) just make sure they have what they need. Yeah. How long did you guys play? Did this go on for the right amount of time? Before, I did do some research on this before, um, and I found Inc. Magazine had this whole article, you know, giving advice on how to do these kinds of things, and they suggested that about an hour is an okay amount of time to play, and they say that's because people can start getting bored after that amount of time. So, you know, maybe they'll start getting on their phone, or maybe they'll start browsing Reddit, because, like, when you're doing this over, you know, webcam, you don't have that same sensory experience, so... So it's easier to get distracted or bored or whatever. So we did end up playing for about an hour. And I think that was a really good amount of time. So if other people want to do this, I would suggest at least starting off with an hour and see how it feels. Uh Uh-huh. That sounds about right to me. Like I've been playing a lot of uh, Google Hangout Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, um, cool. (laughs) Which is great. It's great. I really, I really do enjoy it. But yeah, I feel myself like just waning after an hour. And especially Mm -hmm. like if I've been on, you know, hangout calls all day on video conference calls all day. It just, I do feel drained. Anyway, I get that. No, you described it perfectly. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Okay. So cap it to an hour if you can. I did a little bit of reading on this too about how to organize these like online happy hours. Um, The New York Times had a good guide and it said one of the big things is to limit guests. Like don't invite too Mm -hmm. many people or it might become too hard to manage. Um, How did your game work in that way? Did you have the right numbers? So in that sense, I did not do enough (laughs) research. Um, I learned the hard way that you can definitely have too many cooks. Um, And you want to think not only of how many people you're inviting, um, but who. I invited six people and a lot of them did not know each other. So there was um, a lot of silences at some point. And then when everyone would want to chime in for whatever it may be, maybe somebody won a hand or someone had a question or just wanted to, you know, like talk, everyone would chime in at once. So it got really chaotic at some points. Like it was just crazy, like a jumble of words. Oh, Um, that you can Uh, diagonally and four partners. Bingo. But that craziness to me kind of added to the novelty of the whole thing. And we still got to have conversation here and there anyway. Like if you're going to host one of these things, you have to be ready to like play the parent. You know, you have to be the leader. If It doesn't have to be the host, but somebody has to kind of keep order. Definitely have fun things ready to discuss with people. Okay, cool. Um, So Loteria, would you suggest that for other people? And if not, like what other games do you think would be good? 
I would suggest Loteria or Bingo if you're more comfortable in that sense. I think that's a very easy one to do. Um, other than that, I would suggest I took some inspiration from my own game collection. I think Battleship would be a really good one because you can play that very remotely if you own it. Right. <laughs> Um, I think chess, my husband suggested chess. I think that's also a very good um, suggestion. Yeah, and it's also like it'll flex your brain muscles at the same time. (laughs) Um, And then I did some research and I found on Martha Stewart's website some really good suggestions. So first, Pictionary, which I think is a great idea. I love Pictionary. Um, Charades, but perhaps you type your answers instead of screaming them because... There's the chaos that I've been warning about. And you can play online video games with your friends. Right, yeah. That's a really fun and easy way to connect with people as well. And I think that's what games, like, do for us, right? Like, we we love to play Mm -hmm. games because it gives us a way to connect with other people, to compete with other people, and something Mm -hmm. to do while we, you know, share our lives. So I, I guess... The thing I'm also curious about, May, is like when you started out to do this, you were feeling cooped up. You were feeling feeling lonely. Did this help? Like, do you feel less alone now that you've held an online game night? I know it's just one night, but I'm curious, like, how you walked away from it. I will say that I feel better now than I would if I hadn't done it. This whole thing, as like chaotic as it was at some points, it was also really fun. Cause I did get to talk with my friends and we played a game and the game itself was a good time. So I do think it recharged me a bit, not as Mm -hmm. much as I was expecting it would. Um, But I do think I would be worse off right now if I hadn't done it at all. What do you still feel like you're, you're missing? For me, it's the physical aspect of it because that that is what's missing for me and like i guess we can't do much about it at this point but for me being with people physically is a big deal right because you meet with your friends and you feel this like almost bliss of being with the people that you love and you hug them hello and you hug them goodbye like i'm a very physical person i like like touching people's arms and like uh-huh. shoving them around playfully and stuff like that like that's a really big deal for me so if i can't do that it kind of takes away from it and that just isn't possible through this right. but the we did still have the conversation and some sort of connection that was fun so mm-hmm. not to mention that you were you know being teacher for this whole time you were doing classroom management like I wonder if that takes away from it a little bit um not really because I love being in charge (laughs) (laughs) I love being in charge and I like leading people so that part of it was better actually like I love hosting parties I like having people over and all that so that part of it for me was great (laughs) well and I think another big thing is that I feel a new kinship with my friends Mm. that I have not experienced necessarily before because I feel like even though we didn't talk about Corona stuff and what's really happening, it was understood that we're in this same place and we're in it together. And so us having this party was like a, like I'm, I'm here for you, like you're here for me. And we're doing this because it's part of this new normal and we're trying to help each other get through it. So that was something that I realized like the day after type of thing, not when I was in it. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that sort of kinship is something I felt too. Like 
doing Google Hangouts with my family every week. We do like Rose Thorn Bud. Have you ever done that? No. What is that? So you share like the, your rose is a highlight of your week. Your thorn is oh. like a, a, a low point, And then your bud is something that you're excited about. And it also gets to that kinship you're talking about, right? Like it's very evident to me that even though I'm stuck here at home, the problems I'm up against when it comes to just feeling cooped up or, uh, you know, having to cook more than I used to, stuff like that, aren't unique to me, right? They're not, everybody's going through that. Yeah. And that helps, right? Like knowing that there are other people who get it and a lot of people and then people who you really care about. That makes it even more special, right? That you're all, you already care about each other and you want to be there for each other in this new weird way. Okay, May, so given your whole experience, let's get a recap. What are your takeaways here? What, is your, what are your specific points of advice for other people? All right, I hope you got a pen and paper. <laughs> so the first thing, right, make sure everybody is on the same page before you start, right? Same edition, same version, everyone gets the rules, right? Very important. Right. Next up is think about your guest list and the number of people that you're inviting. You don't want to invite too many people and you should invite folks who know each other. All right, because then it can get kind of kind of weird. I'd say try starting out with like three or four. Okay, so pretty small. All right. Next thing, do not play for too long. About an hour is fine. If you do an hour and you feel like you can keep going, that's great. But don't set yourself up for failure and do it like start off at three hours. That might not work. <laughs> Next up, be ready to be the facilitator or the parent, the leader, whatever it may be, because you will need somebody to kind of guide everybody through this. Because if not, things can just devolve into silence or chaos. And finally, make sure to set ground rules for your conversation. Like if you don't want to talk about coronavirus, let people know. Or if you do, maybe set aside a specific time to talk about it so everyone can maybe decompress at once, you put it away, and you can move on. Um, This also may mean that you should have some conversation starters at the ready in case people were like, well, I'm going to talk about coronavirus, (laughs) and now I don't know what to talk about. (laughs) That sounds great. All good advice. CPR's May Ortega and Sam Brash, hosts of the new podcast At a Distance, about how to live your best life in isolation. You can hear this and other episodes at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we just heard how a virtual game night can relieve those feelings of loneliness and isolation. Now let's turn to the healing power of music. We're sharing what those of us here on staff are listening to as we work and live through these tough times. My pick is Come On Up to the House. I find myself listening to this song over and over, both the Tom Waits original and this Joseph cover. What I love about this version, apart from the way their voices and harmonies are just really comforting right now, is the way that it makes the lyrics very clear. The only things that you can see is all that you lack. Well, the moon is broken and the sky is cracked. Come on up to the house The only thing you can see is all that you lack Come on up to the house I'm giving myself space to grieve the things this pandemic has taken. I live alone, I miss my friends and family. 
But I also know that there's a difference between grieving and wallowing. And to me, come on up to the house is an invitation, like an invitation for dinner or coffee. And we can't literally be in each other's houses right now. But I do feel that community when I'm talking with friends on the phone or having game night with my family over video chat or even when I pass somebody else wearing a mask when I'm out walking the dog. There are a lot of ways that we can come on up to the house even still. Come on up to the house Come on up to the house The world is not my home Just a passing through song makes room for things to be really hard right now. It's also a kick in the pants to come together. this song along with other staff favorites for staying at home in the Spotify playlist we put together. Search CPR News on Spotify to listen. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News.